Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am joined by Derek today. Alistair and Andrew are not present. Alistair is gallivanting about the country or something like that. Derek, this is the first time that we have recorded in 2019. Uh, welcome to a new new year. Now you just gave away the secret that we've been holding on to that Keller episode for a while. You're giving That's away the trade true. schedule. Giving away yeah, your schedule. Be- now the government <laughs> now the government knows. Now they know. Um, because <laughs> they also know how well organized we are and whatnot. No, I mean when you have Tim Keller on the show and you record just before Christmas, you hold the show until the first show of 2019, so it seems like it's going to be a, a, a big year. But this is the first time that we've actually talked to each other in the new year, and it's very exciting. And we do miss Alistair and Andrew considerably. But we are joined today uh, by a dear friend, uh, Paul Guttaker, um, who joins the show uh, somewhat as as proof that I actually do have friends. Um, it's great to have someone who I know who knows me personally uh, uh, join us. I can I can attest to Paul's high character as a person. Uh, besides the fact that he happens to be m- my friend, it's 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 the <laughs> well, least. Those two would have to be unrelated. <laughs> those two right. would. Those are independent. They have to be very <laughs> independent. <laughs> the fact the fact that he's actually my friend is indicative of uh, the extent to which charity. Uh, has seized his soul that he would he would deign to be friends <laughs> with someone like me. Um, but Paul is a candidate in uh, uh, for PhD in history here at Baylor. Uh, he's also the director of the Brazos Fellows. Full disclosure: I sit on the board. I'm not sure I really understand what you do, Paul. Uh, even though I sit <laughs> on the board, um, mm. what are the Brazos Fellows? What do you do? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, it's great. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, yeah, Brazos Fellows, so it's a new uh, fellowship here in Waco for college graduates who are looking for a space where they can explore big questions of sort of calling and vocation um, and, and study and sort of think theologically about uh, the question of vocation in a community uh, in a community context. So we're in our first year, actually, here in Waco. We've got our first cohort, and the program centers around theological study, um, spiritual disciplines that we practice together, and then vocational discernment. So trying to figure out, um, I don't know, trying to figure out a lot of the questions that this article touches on. So there's a lot of interesting connections, I think, between what millennials face in terms of uh, uncertainty and, and, and job options or lack of options and what we're up to. But yeah, so that's, that's what fellows is. Um, and we're currently accepting applications. Awesome. That's great. uh, Um, you've given, you've given away the lead. We are actually going to talk about, um, an article. Yeah. How dare you? (laughs) You're never coming back. You've broken (laughs) the number one. This was an an audition. This was an audition. And you, gosh, um, um, but we are going to talk about an article today, a uh, long article at BuzzFeed, which is apparently still a website. I don't think I've read anything from BuzzFeed in two years, uh, but they're still going, it seems, and going well. Uh, a terrific article by Anne Helen Peterson, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating piece. Um, 
she opens by describing the um, the paralysis that she feels, uh, she and her partner feels around a number of tasks, uh, a, a kind of paralysis or anxiety about sort of doing things that she needs to do that aren't necessarily the most urgent or important things for her to do, but are things that need to happen for her life to run efficiently, as it were. And she describes this burnout that she feels and this inability to do these tasks. Um, and in the, at the end of her opening section, she writes, so what now? Should I meditate more, negotiate for more time off, delegate tasks within my relationship, perform acts of self-care and institute timers on my social media? How, in other words, can I optimize myself to get those mundane tasks done and theoretically cure my burnout? As millennials have aged into our 30s, that's the question we keep asking, she writes, and keep failing to adequately answer. But maybe that's because it's the wrong question altogether. So I, I have lots of thoughts about this article and the, uh, the just more broadly, the experiences that it depicts among quote-unquote millennials. Um, but I'm interested to hear from you guys what is it that drives – I mean, first off, did the article resonate with your guys' experience? Um, it, do you think that she describes the problems accurately? Uh, and, and what should we make of this burnout that people in our generation tend to feel? Just at, at the outset, one thing that I thought was really – that really resonated and that I thought was interesting is that she's not talking about burnout uh, in a sense that – you can't get anything done or you don't, you know, you're sort of in, unable to get out of bed and sort of, it's, it's not burnout in terms of, um, sort of crashing, right? It's the little, um, the little tasks or the little things that just, you feel paralyzed by. Uh, so I want to, you know, one example that comes to mind for me is in a really busy stretch in the last month, the you know the light the fluorescent light bulb in our laundry room goes out and i'm i'm like absolutely <laughs> like you know i can oh, man. i can organize i can organize a retreat i can set up meetings i can like write a dissertation but i'm totally paralyzed by this it's like well what am i you know am i going to pay an electrician 150 dollars an hour to look at this can i jostle it can it you know and and it it's just it, it seems like, it feels like the kind of thing that I just will not be able to get to for months. Um, and that, that's, the, that's the feeling of it, right? Even though it's not a huge project or anything. So uh, her sort of account of this being, again, not a sort of general apathy or laziness or anything like this, but feeling overwhelmed by things that probably shouldn't overwhelm us and, and then sort of describing how we get to that totally resonates. I'm totally there. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that the choice paralysis and the reluctance to do tiny, small things when you're in the midst of like grad school, writing, um, working on sermons, like, you know, having a 12, 15 hour day that's fairly full, but then just dumb little things like, like filling out a form, yeah. <sighs> you know, um, that element is there. And it's been there for a while. And, you know, I've talked, I talked about this with my wife and uh, just a lot of the whole experience that the article is describing um, 
the sense of things uh, besides just the the key features that she's um, put her finger on is very real and resonated, and I know it resonated widely, um, even beyond. I think I think that's one thing is beyond the the millennial generation just experience that kind of burnout uh, is is easily identifiable when somebody points it out. And you see it, like, yes, yes, that's that's it. And it, I will say this: the, the 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 naming of it as burnout as something different from what I have traditionally heard the term burnout referred to. I always hear about it in um, in ministry context, like oh, that pastor burned out, right? It just he had he had to take a year or two out of 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 the ministry just because he'd run himself frantic. But it, it uh, and I'd heard about that for years. But just taking that kind of analysis and just broad base. Oh no, this is a kind of a cultural phenomenon was illuminating uh, for me, at least mm-hmm. in, in how it named the situation. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that I really, it's, it's a very subtle problem. Um, and it's a subtle problem. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's subtle problems are hard to name. And this kind of anxiety about what we're doing and the anxiety about the kind of sort of endless feeling of expectations or obligations that are upon us, a a sort of endless Mm -hmm. source of Mm -hmm. things that we need to do that are Mm -hmm. open-ended, that that are lie before us that we have to fulfill, and and the kinds of like endless demands – there's there's a kind of weariness that mm-hmm. f- sits within the soul around all of that, and it's very easy to um, to want to uh, check out from doing those things, and and to really, I mean, she talks about paralysis to be paralyzed from doing about them to not actually be able to do mm-hmm. these sort of mid range tasks um, because. Uh, we just don't have the kind of personal or practical or emotional energy on the one hand, but we also don't have the the kind of like discipline or drive or whatever it is that our parents seem to have uh, such that these things always seem to happen, right? What was interesting was just how much of this, you know, realizing how widespread it is. I mean, a lot of this stuff I'd kind of, especially my experience over the last few years, I'd kind of pinned on um, grad school because grad school for, you know, when you've been in it for two or three years, there's just this level of you sign up for a task that isn't done until you've got a dissertation in hand. And so for, you know, the, the day you sign up and then you, you, you go to classes and then you uh, do research and then you, um, you know, you pass a thing, you pass comps, you pass whatever, but it's the, the feeling that you accomplished something really I don't think I, at least I, I don't know I haven't been there but I don't feel like it's ever going to really arrive until I, I'm walking out of uh, a dissertation defense uh, that hopefully goes well or something but when you start to realize this that that feeling that there's always something on the horizon that will never you know the, the burden that the, the can keeps getting kicked the existential relief can keeps getting kicked further and further a year out, year and a half out, whatever. Um, 
the fact that that's even more widespread than just you know the, the narrow experience is of a of, of a grad student. This is just everybody. Everybody's got the existential can uh, being kicked out, but it's attached to other things like the you know the day that you will be able to have affordable health care, or the day that you will be able to be in a home, or the day that you will not be constantly checking your your near to zero bank account. Um, that broad based um, sense of things, or or the day that you, I don't know, get a career that you love that handles all those things. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's illuminating. Um, but that horizon uh, element, uh, there's, it, it's really interesting. I don't know. I don't know that she touched on it as much. It's been a bit since I read the article, but the hopelessness I think would be is, is, is part of the general sense. I mean, I, I don't think I'm hopeless right now, but that level of the temptation towards it, towards a despair of the future is mm-hmm. part of what I think characterizes the sense of burnout in that um, your hopes for what we're going to materialize have 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 failed. And like she says, part of part of the experience of millennial burnout that she's talking about is the fact that all these folks were told that if you you know you go to go to college, maybe go to grad school, or you know take all the test prep, do all the things that. You, you know, you get out and there's a job and you can start living your life and then it didn't materialize for a whole bunch of people. Um, and it seems not to be materializing, uh, consistently. It robs the general normative, the general normal sense that, um, put in the work, get the payment. Uh, you know, the effort leads to a particular result or, 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 or a result of a sufficient, um, sufficient payout that this little thing will happen or this big thing will happen. And so the hopelessness factor, I mean, that, that was thick throughout the article, especially because she ended on a like almost entirely hopeless note. Uh, and that's, um, that was also something that was just striking as I, oh, sorry, Matt, striking. Um, but, <laughs> but it, it caught me. And along uh, those lines, I thought another, I thought another really um, insightful component of this that she touched on was it's not just that we find it hard to get these tasks done and that you know the the sort of despair that you're describing Derek but there's this line where she says one of the most ineffable ineffable and frustrating expressions of burnout is it takes things that should be enjoyable and flattens them into a list of tasks yeah so there's this sense in which our our relationships um our community, our uh, even our sort of recreation or our hobbies, these also have become sort of items on the to-do list because because of this the, the broader general problem of burnout, such that I'm trying to like schedule a time where I can Skype to catch up with my you know parents or you know it, the things that should be life giving that should kind of flow out of. Of, of desire and joy, they themselves become sort of, oh no, when am I going to get to that? They become sources of anxiety and, and and we schedule them. And that really, that that sort of opens a whole new can of worms in terms of this question, because it's not just about work and and um, financial stability and, and finding meaning in your work and all these things. It's about all the non-work things um, that, that make life what it is. Hmm. Yeah, I the, Derek, your points about hope, I think, are uh, significant. Um, one of the one of the phrases uh, that um, 
the author mentions from the psychologist Cohen is melancholic world weariness. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, which I think is a terrific phrase. Um, there's actually a, a young Augustine scholar, uh, Sarah Stewart Croiker, who has a um, a terrific article on Augustine and world weariness and the kinds of uh, appropriate uh, sort of exhaustion with the world that an Augustinian understanding can allow for and even support because – we live in a world of, uh, as Cohen notes, relentless change. And there are ways in which our contemporary society, that change takes particular forms and feels massively um, sort of different than previous generations, right? The, the rapid change in terms of technology and the advent of the smartphone um, is you know, has, has sped up the pace of life. Uh, it seems in ways that previous generations may not have, have, have felt, but at the same time that what's embedded within those technological upheavals and changes is a fact about the world that Augustine wrestled with very deeply, which is we live in a world, uh, which tears our souls apart as it were, uh, through putting us uh, by by putting us through lots of upheavals and stretching and uh, distending our loves and our lives in lots of different directions and mm. in one sense fragmenting us uh, uh, such that we don't have coherent wholes as selves or, or coherent identities um, and within that process there's a, an, a kind of inevitable world weariness that arises a, a sense that one is still in this world and it's not quite despair and it's not quite um sort of the, the the exhaustion of the thing but one is just tired of the constant uh pulling of oneself in all the different directions that one is pulled mm. um and i think that that within that the the grammar of hope and the the possibilities of a, a new future and of having uh, uh, actions that can be completed and things come to an end becomes really really valuable, um, almost almost essential for the soul. Well, there, it was telling that she cites uh, references Ecclesiastes as an example of mm -hmm. this sort of world weariness and. Um, Ecclesiastes is fantastically is a fantastic exposition of that sense in many ways, um, in the way that even even the horizon, the fact that you know the, some of the most I don't know gut wrenching lines and also hilarious lines in the whole book are, are when he reflects on the fact that you know you you can work hard, you can build a kingdom, whatever. But what if your kid's an idiot and and you pass it on and he blows you know the inheritance or he blows. Uh, all that you've worked for. This too is a great evil. Um, and and sort, sort of that sense of like, even, even in the horizon, even if in the horizon of your own life, um, you achieve and you reach, uh, in the grand scheme, this world, it, it can still go, right? Everything you've built, everything you've worked for. And so um, teaching that, you know, merely earthly horizons, uh, they will produce this inevitably. 
for anybody, rich, poor, and, and so forth. That's, that's, um, I mean, that's biblical in that sense. I, I do, I'm to maybe to turn a quick corner here. I do think that while nothing changes and everything stays the same in some sense, uh, the particularities of this generation though, I mean, it, it does seem ramped up and it does seem sped up and the, with the material and economic conditions and the, you know, advent of smartphones and all that sort of thing. Um, which is part of why the pushback was that this isn't just a millennial thing. This is a widespread experience, which I think is probably to some degree true. Uh, but that seems to be even more pressing on those who've just grown up in it. And it will probably be even worse for the, the kids coming up after us, Generation Z. Um, I am curious what you guys think about responses to it, um, to answering this particular challenge now under these conditions. And I, you know, I don't know what that looks like. Uh, you know, if you guys are thinking broad social, political, economic, that's not where I go, but, but so I'm curious what, what you guys think about responding in this particular time to that. Yeah. One, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind, I actually wondered if she underrated the smartphone and and the sort of social media, digital technology side of this. She definitely touches on it. But um, I mean, the the research that shows that we're, you know, Sherry Turkle's research that shows we're more connected than ever, but we're more alone than ever. Um, you know, we, we're busier and we, we, we get all these sort of jolts that make us feel like we're close and that we're connected and we're relating, but in fact, we're isolated and, you know, teenage depression, anxiety, all these things are um, on noticeable rises since 2007. So I, 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 you know, she might actually underrate that uh, and, and favor the bigger economic and political explanations. But one of the things that it's sort of related to the economic that comes to mind is the role of sort of consumerism not just in our buying but in sort of all of life the endless choices uh, that we're confronted with um, that do seem in some in some sense at least unprecedented um, so alan alan jacobs talked about this last summer at the christian study center's uh, meeting where he said you know <clears throat> our students are being told that they make their own meaning they are responsible not just you know to get a job but to decide who they are how they identify what their purpose is and this is an enormous burden um, it's actually a burden we're not meant to carry right um, and and so on a mo on the most sort of fundamental theological level just to just to respond with a, an account of being creatures uh, finite limited this is actually really good news, I think, for millennials. Um, you're not you're, you're not your own. You don't have to decide who you are. Uh, you don't. Uh, you know all the endless choices that you're faced with. Some of them are are given to you. Um, that's it's it's a, it's at least a way in which the gospel is profoundly good news um, to someone who carries this enormous burden of really being responsible for. The eternal meaning of their life, <laughs> uh, as manifested through choosing everything from a college to a job down to a gender, right? Um, so there's there's something 
that the finitude of being a creature of our identity being given to us rather than created by us that um, that seems to me to be one of the roots of this this anxiety yeah i uh talking to i mean I, I did a short stint working with some northwestern kids a few months ago and um just the element of identity in christ as as given and uh and just not achieved right that this yeah. is not the, the most fundamental thing about you is not something you have to achieve it's actually something that's been achieved for you and um out of ephesians 1 and the way that that actually leads to I mean, just actually fundamentally the ability to rest, uh, to take a Sabbath, to um, realize that you don't, you don't actually keep the universe spinning. Um, you don't keep it in orbit. You don't save yourself. I mean, this is just going Protestant, you know, justification by faith here. But that, that's, that I do think is actually a reorienting uh, gospel that the practice of Sabbath and regular Sabbath worship should be aimed at um, reminding and recentering and reorienting us to that basic sense that in all things, you know, that doesn't actually fix any of the material or economic or whatever general conditions, but it, it reorients you into a bigger frame and it puts those realities in that bigger frame and it gives a different horizon uh, that is, that is huge. Um, that yeah i mean derek derek that's that's interesting i mean to be really crass and cynical in response it sounds a bit like lol go to church um (laughs) yeah what's wrong with that yeah nothing's wrong with that lol people should go to church um but i but i do think you know jake midor at mirror orthodoxy um had a terrific post where he doubled down on the economic dimensions that lie beneath mm-hmm. the the article. And the author, you know, and Helen Peterson really brings this up and, and frames this as a, a response to certain uh, economic conditions. And Jake's point was, this is not so much about um, millennials. This is a matter of class and it's a certain kind of, uh, millennial experience. I'm not sure that's true, honestly. I mean, I when I think about the people that I know, it's it's certainly not a matter of class in any traditional sense that we would think of class. Um, the the my friends who are live and come from very different social classes than I do seem to have the same sorts of challenges around these kinds of things as my upper uh, class friends do, um, albeit in very different ways. But I do think that there is also a, a kind of sense of age here. So one of my questions is how how are millennials transitioning into middle age? And they're there's a, a natural virtue that Aquinas talks about, which is something like magnanimity. It's a sense of uh, almost greatness. It's a sense of like wanting to do uh, big things, a sense of uh, ambition, a sense of, 
you know, that you're going to leave a mark. And it's a natural virtue. Uh, and it's a sort of virtue of youth, right? Those who are in college, beyond college, um, and I think maybe this is generational, but I think like millennials, when I was in college and beyond, we were marked by this sense of magnanimity that we were going to, quote, change the world. And five or six years ago, there was a whole spate of books by um, uh millennial Christian authors about how that sort of atmosphere was going to be exhausting and was going to lead to burnout. So my my friend Tyler Wig Stevenson wrote a really good book called The World Is Not Yours to Save, where he he basically looked at the kinds of uh, ambitions and tasks that millennials were taking on and and tried to say something like what you guys are saying, right? It's not yours to save. It's not yours to carry in this whole way. But the thing is, like, as you get older, it gets harder and harder to accept that even that kind of like sense of wanting to do things because your time starts running out and magnanimity has to transition into hope or you do lose yourself in melancholic world weariness. Um, you just absolutely do. And so I, I, I understand the economic dimensions. I understand the technological dimensions. I think that those are real, but I actually worry that they do not come to the fundamental core, which is a problem of recognizing that we age and that time is limited and that we have to cultivate different types of virtues as we grow older and either hope takes over our souls and animates new action within us, or we become cynical and jaded and, um, uh, and enter a kind of, um, uh, uh, permanent melancholy that we can't escape. That's, I mean, that, I have, there's I have no, a thought, but yeah. I'm Paul, I'm curious where you go with that. I, I have a, I have a yeah. follow up, but yeah, that's, I think that's right. I mean, I definitely felt the difference from my 20s sort of feeling like endless possibilities were open and, um, you know, there was all kinds of time to figure things out and, you know, vocational discernment, these sorts of things. And and my 30s where it's like, wow, you know, it's there's there's books on my shelf I'm not going to read like ever in my life, you know, and that sense of the finitude, the, you know, the limits of life. Um, it, it, along with aging, experiencing death, you know, of, of family, of friends, um, which is more likely, I think, you know, as you get into your thirties, mm-hmm. um, I think that's another part of this, right? Um, we're reminded of more, our mortality, which is a good thing. Uh, and in fact, probably, a, you know, a prerequisite for genuine hope, um, is that sort of that first step of confronting mortality, death. Uh, finitude, uh, you're not going to actually get to genuine hope. You know, you, the the sort of early 20s optimism, that's not the same thing as hope, right? That's part of what I hear you saying, Matt. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I want to say that's, this is all true. And yet, don't not say but, the, just accept it. Just, 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 the entire, just say, 
true and complete and good and wow, you're so right, Matt. Just go, just say that, well, Derek. So, so there's so there's two or three things that um, occurred to me as you were uh, talking about the virtue of magnanimity and so forth. One is the factor of uh, certain certain virtues that were maybe not cultivated by the the ones that were like the our, our, our values, our hopes, the things that we were taught, the things that we were handed, the vision of a of a of a great, bright, big future. Um, other muscles left were left uh, un uncultivated, and that's part of I think uh, that's part of I think the problem when it comes to. The other element of burnout is that you thought it was going to be one way, and so you didn't train certain things, right. you didn't have certain expectations, and so that's part. The letdown part is part of it. Um, so it's it's that, but it's also there were some other deficiencies, and the fact that where we are now does make it hard to cultivate that older, you know, older person hope. Um, where, where, you know, you're chastened, but you've, you've had your wins, you've had your losses. So you're, you're humbler, but it's, it's the fact that the wins maybe haven't materialized in the same way that cultivates that balance. Um, so that's the other, that's the other part of it there. There. So that's, that's where I, I still, I don't think I've figured out how to respond entirely or, or what, a broader response to the experiences, naming it's good. Some of the basic bread and butter realities of life in the church and the gospel are, are big antidotes to some of the existential experience dimension to it. But, um, I just feel like there's, there's more, there's more there. Uh, so a little bit of, I guess that's a caveat on that. Uh, so I, I think that's exactly right, Derek. I think you're, uh, there is a kind of elusiveness or uh, an ethereality, a, a kind of non-tangible quality about speaking in speaking about the virtues and in taking that kind of therapeutic approach to these conditions. I mean, um, we can talk about personal practical disciplines of resistance uh, and personal and practical disciplines of learning how to hope. Uh, and I think much of what Paul was saying about like our disconnection from death and the dying is one of the places that we could turn um, for sort of grounding uh, uh, practices and disciplines uh, that would uh, cultivate a kind of hope and, and help us escape the, the world weariness and the anxiety that we have. Um, but even there, I'm not sure that's sufficient right and and you do have to have uh, and paul i think this is something that you're trying to do you do have to have communities who are um ordered in the same way who are providing the right kind of ecosystem such that practices of resistance can take hold uh for real yeah does, I, and, I mean, right? and I think that's that's I think that's right. And I think one of the other differences between early twenties and thirties is it's harder to do community. Um, uh, it you know you go from sort of college it providing everything being provided for you a certain kind of mobility. As some of your friends start to have kids, as people move, 
it it does get harder and then it and then community becomes another like like the article names it becomes another burden another task and so yeah i guess one of the questions we're trying we're trying to get at with our work with the fellows is how do we sort of how do we build these structures so that when we talk about the disciplines of prayer daily prayer when we talk about the discipline of sabbath which you named derek which i think is really actually really underrated here i mean it's just practicing sabbath is a radical move against this i mean just just start there right i mean that's i think that's actually really practical and underrated but but um if if practiced on their own uh, on an individual level i think they can still push towards this kind of burnout and we need communities of practice we need communities of practice we need um we need community where it's kind of it's normal and it's expected to you know have your phones put away when you're sharing a meal i mean these these little subversive moves that um that that push back i mean i'm I'm interested because i mean a couple of our fellows this year were really high achieving college students and part of the draw for them was we've been too busy and so what we want is a community a community and, and actually a commitment a rule of life like a commitment to some disciplines and some practices that we don't have to try to will ourselves to do every day or every week um but but that are decided for us you know so how do we how do we replicate that i mean how do you build that in churches in towns you know in neighborhoods that's a that's a big question and it's it's not unrelated to the economic question um, that's right. But it's yeah, that's why it's hard to do those things. That's part of it is the time and the hustle. And, yeah. you know, th- that level of, you know, the, the pushback for some folks I can imagine and I, understandable is like, oh, talk about practicing Sabbath. That'd be nice, but I've got two jobs and, yeah. um, and I, that I, that I need. So at, at which point, yeah, you're right. That's, that's big. And so that has to look the workarounds for that in a sense, they have to look different. And that's where I think more pastoral care and creativity is, is going to be required. Yeah. And seeing, seeing these things as good news, right? It's yeah. Sabbath for some people connotes this sort of Sabbatarian kind of legalism, but it's actually profoundly good news to be told you know, like you said, Matt, the world's not going to fall apart if you stop working for a day. In fact, um, you can rest. You know, this is, it's, it's another way in which the truth of the gospel um, can be heard as good uh, to, to burnt out and anxious and overworked people. And, and even maybe the person with two jobs, maybe there's a kind of Sabbath practice they can enter into. I think that's right. Um, for those who are listening at home, this has all been one... Uh, long setup for two things that you should know about. One is the Brazos Fellows, which Paul is involved with. I think the other thing that we should just mention here is Jake Medor's forthcoming book, In Search of Common Ground, uh, which is going to take up a lot of these questions uh, in more full terms. And um, we talked about having Jake on the show as well, and we're going to have him on the show a lot uh, (laughs) around his book. Um, And so... Uh, we decided to hold off on that. But I do think that uh, the kinds of sort of broad questions about um, how we organize communities such that we have practices of resistance within an economic environment that is not necessarily conducive to them. Um, Jake's book, I think, is going to 
unpack this in ways that some of us are going to disagree with, um, but I think will be a really valuable, um, <laughs> uh, uh, really valuable contribution to this kind of conversation and um, a, like a necessary, a necessary book to read on these things. So Jake's book is forthcoming. Um, we'll, le- we'll leave it there. This has, I think, been helpful um, for me to think through some of these issues. Um, I'm always interested in the ways in which um, theological concepts and uh, the language of virtue and, and practices like Sabbath work their way into our lives and out into the community. And, you know, Paul, the experience, the, the practices that you are pursuing as a part of the Brazos Fellows and the experiment of forming a community that is a learning community that's discerning vocation, that's trying to answer some of these things in a, in a, um, in a robust and theologically grounded way, I think is really exciting. So, Paul, thanks for joining us today. Um, if, as much uh, uh, now that we've talked about, like, the burdens that community becomes as we age. Uh, thanks for putting up with the burden of my <laughs> friendship. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I mean, I actually asked a couple. I asked a couple of our fellows this morning before jumping on. You know, is is part of the problem too many podcasts um, with with burnout? Yeah. <laughs> but they they insisted that that's not the problem. So um, good news, you can keep listening to podcasts and not you know fall into burnout and anxiety. So. I we appreciate that immensely. However, <laughs> podcasting sermons is still a bad idea. Um, <laughs> and on that final note, we're going to wrap it up. If you're interested in learning more about what Paul is doing with the Brazos Fellows, you can find out information at brazosfellows.com. Again, I strongly recommend the program to you. Uh, if you know a college graduate who's interested in a year of rigorous vocational and theological discernment, the Brazos fellows is a terrific way for them to experience that for all of you who are listening at home we're grateful for your time and your attention we're especially grateful for our patreon subscribers for your generosity and support of the show we know that we've been remiss in extending our gratitude as we should to all of you and we've got some changes coming in the near future which will hopefully allow us to do that more tangibly so stay tuned for that If you'd like to join the merry band of Patreon subscribers or subscribe in iTunes or the like, the links to do so are in the show notes at Muir Orthodoxy. We'll be back soon with another show about the shape of faith and theology in the modern world. But until then, this has been Mere Fidelity.